you open up to Luke chapter 16? We have just finished our four-week January series, and now we're back on Luke, and we'll be taking this all the way through to Easter. Today we're going to look at Luke 16, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. I read an online article this past week, and it was talking about our political situation. It began, and it said this. Up is now down, and down is now up. On November 7th, experts were forecasting a Republican civil war, a disgraced presidential candidate, a lost Senate, and a liberal Supreme Court for the next 30 years. Two days... And an election later, the world flipped. Republicans were found to have majorities in both houses of Congress, overwhelming majorities in the state legislatures, and with governorships. And for the Democrats, protests against the sitting president are no longer near as treasonous, but now they're considered patriotic. Media collusion with the president is no longer natural, but unprofessional, dishonest. Up is now down. Down is now up. So politically speaking, you, have, you could say we have experienced what I call the reversal. Everything has been turned upside on its head. People that were once in are now out. And people that were once out of Washington are now in. It's shocking, actually. It's fascinating to me. But if you want to compare this to spiritual teachings, you have not seen anything yet compared to what's coming. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is one of the scariest portions in the book of Luke. I would dare say in the Bible, it's the story of a rich man and Lazarus. We find it on Luke 16, starting in verse 19. And the title is, The Reversal, or The World as It Will Be. Let's read it. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things? And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I call this the great reversal. This is a very strange, scary story. If we take this seriously, um, this should terrify some of us. I mean, really terrify us. We have here a parable, a warning, and an indictment. That's the best way to put it. There's a lot of discussions by scholars on how to approach the story. Are we supposed to take this as something that really happened, or is it just a metaphor? During Jesus' day, there were legends about the underworld. Is that what this is, like a legend? Some scholars debate, was Lazarus a real man? Or is it a type foreshadowing the Lazarus, Jesus' friend, that was to be raised from the dead in the future? There's a lot of answers, a lot of questions, and a lot of mystery surrounding this, but what we can say for certain is that this is a parable. And a parable's intention is to wake you up concerning the coming of the kingdom of God. Those of us who are alive right now, how you live will affect your life after the grave. So be warned, pay attention, and for every good parable, Jesus would say it like this. He who has an ear, let him hear what is being said. Because this is terrifying. The context of the story, Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees. And this is an indictment against them. If they don't change, if they don't change their ways, they have a grim future awaiting. The Pharisees, just to by review, they're a group of Jewish leaders. They held a lot of power in Israel, and they were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They really wanted to kill him. They wanted him dead. For us, who are removed 2,000 years from the Pharisees, I think we see them and paint them with a black brush. To me, we, uh, we think we are nothing like them. They're just hypocrites. They're the bad group. that You notice how Jesus only went after the religious people? The truth of the matter is he went after the religious people for a purpose. The reason he didn't attack the sinner is because the sinner was already condemned. The Pharisee, he, however, had a purpose. So the number one problem wasn't as much that they were hypocrites, which they were. Jesus says in Matthew 23, they were like tombs or white sepulchers with dead men bones on the inside and the outside. They look really nice painted up, putting on a facade. But that's not the number one problem with the Pharisees. The number one problem is they forgot their purpose. God has set the nation Israel in the Old Testament to reach the nations to display his wisdom. And the Pharisees were the leaders of Israel. They should have been the first ones declaring God's greatness. However, they turned inward. They became selfish, worrying only about their self-righteousness. They were failing in their witness. So you could apply it like this to us. What's wrong with the Pharisee? It's this. Go hit the slide. God's people, which were the Pharisees at that time, but now it's the Christian who has the Spirit of God in them. We are 
called to invite people who are outside God's grace in. But when we're closed, when we're selfish, when we're self-centered and focused and narcissistic, we keep people who are closed shut out from his grace. What we're going to do is we're going to see a rich man in the story, and one writer says, he hasn't really committed any grave sin, but only that he lived for himself. That was his major problem, his major reason to be condemned. Could that be said about you? Let's look at the story. This story is a story of contrast. First, we're going to see a contrast of worlds. I'm going to call one world the here and one world the hold. You'll explain that in a second. But they're different. They're completely different. They are not like each other. It's going to be a contrast of status. We're going to have a rich man. He has everything. We're going to have a poor man named Lazarus. He has nothing. It's a contrast. It's also a contrast on rewards. It's going to be in, we're going to be talking about this guy, Abraham. Abraham is a representative of all the faithful. Abraham is going to have comfort for one, and he's going to give anguish for another. But more importantly, we are going to see from this parable how the economy of earth, the way it works, and how the economy of heaven, the way heaven works, are mind-blowingly different. They're different. They're different places. And so when you go from the here to the hold, it is truly a reversal, not just of condition, but the way everything is. Let me explain. Let's first discuss the here. It begins in verse 19 with a rich man and a poor man who are living in this world. So when I say the here, I mean the world as it is today, right now. It is the world you're born in. It's the world that feeds you its values, its attitudes, its goals. It's the air you breathe every day. The Bible calls this the world system. And so what we find, first of all, in the here is this rich man. He was a Jewish man, but man was he living the dream, as we would say. If we could be honest, we would want the rich man's life. Look at what it says in verse 19. There's a rich man. First of all, his clothing was exquisite. It's purple. At that time, just getting the dye to make your clothes purple, you had to get this exotic shellfish called the murex, which the poor couldn't get. They couldn't buy. They didn't have enough money. So his clothes were just rich. He had underclothes that says here, fine linen. Some Greek uh, lexicon say it was heavy, thick wool. So you could say, really, this rich man would only go shopping at Jerusalem's Macy's and he would not go to the specials. He'd get it top price. And you will not see him waiting in line on Black Friday at all. His clothes are nice. Second thing, he eats only the best. Listen to what it says. It says, he feasted sumptuously. That means his table was a continual banquet, laden with the best of foods. I was reading this uh, Jewish menu, and I'm trying to put together probably what he ate. And he, and he was so, look, listen to how rich he was. He probably could eat something different every night of the week. Probably had lamb chops on Monday. 
top grade sirloin steak on Tuesday, matzo ball soup with a side of crisp potato latke on Wednesday, a juicy beef brisket cooked with sweet apricots and a brown sugar glaze on Thursday. He had a large loaf of braided challah bread for Sabbath. And then probably for a lighter meal, towards the end of the week, a rumid sandwich with chips. Nice Jewish cuisine. Definitely no bacon. No bacon. Nope, no bacon. Not kosher. So not only have nice clothes, he ate like a king. And then it says, if you, you can read it like this, at his gate was laid a poor man. So he had a gate. And when you read the commentators, the idea is that he probably had a fenced-in property with a covered portico, and outside this gated fence was Lazarus. So it's the hint that he had it made. He was not just doing good. He was enjoying the fruits of his well-bred, wealthy station. Most of you are striving for that. Is that a bad thing to be wealthy? That's not the problem. The problem is, in his wealth, he doesn't see who's lying right at his gate. A poor man named Lazarus. Let's see the contrast. The rich man had it good. Lazarus had it bad. I mean, really bad. As bad as you could imagine. He wasn't wearing purple. He didn't have fine linen. It says his clothing was coverings of sores means he is naked out in the open. It was so bad, according to verse 21, dogs came and licked those sores. Not dogs that you go to Petco and get groomed. They're the dogs, if you remember the Russian Olympics, you'd have these, these basically groups of savage dogs roaming the streets. That's what this idea is. They weren't tame. They were mongrels licking his wounds. A horrible sight. I'll never forget when I first started working in Chicago, I wanted to get to work early, and outside of our business, there was a park bench. And on that park bench was a man about 45 years old. He was completely naked. It's 30 degrees. He's sleeping in newspapers. I remember getting close to him, and he smelled. That's probably what Lazarus was like. His food, according to verse 21, was more of a wish, a dream, than a reality. It says he desired to be fed. Desired. It wasn't that he was fed. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He was wishing and longing for scraps. He would love to rummage through the garbage just to have some probably potato peels from one of the side dishes of the rich man. Probably wanted to lick the broth at the bottom of the bowl from the matzo ball soup or suck the bones from the beef brisket, anything. He was hungry. And the rich man didn't see it. And then the third thing you could say is he had nowhere to live. He was sleeping outside of the gate. Some people wonder if he's a cripple. Wonder if he had kind of like a coin, little coin thing there, begging. What it does say is that he had no place to sleep. And then the worst thing it says about him, no fanfare, it just says in verse 22, he died. He died. That is the world as it is. The winners live in luxury, callous and cold to the needs of the poor. And like 
Lazarus die without even a whisper, no funeral service, a human being reduced to a bag of bones, left to die in the side of a road. It was said that if you didn't have a decent burial in those days, it was an open sign of God's cursing disfavor. I think it's sort of still the same in our day. The rich don't necessarily see the suffering of the poor. It's just true. We don't. But the thing about Lazarus is God knew his name. God knew his name. Each and every one of us, regardless of our economic condition, is known by God. The word Lazarus literally means he whom God helps. sure doesn't look like it here. But what we're going to see, and this is where it gets interesting, when the reversal occurs, you'll see that Lazarus is going to be doing just fine. So let's look at how this story gets interesting. At the moment of his death, it says... Verse 22, he died, and when he died, he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, often, this is where some people get the idea of a guardian angel, that when you die, throughout your life, you have a couple angels that probably follow you, assist you, help you. And when you die, that angel gets the basically the honor to escort you to heaven. I happen with Lazarus. That's where some people speculate we have guardian angels. I don't, I'm not going to say anything on that. I don't put it past that, but that's all it really says. But I want you to notice what happens to the rich man. It says in verse 22, the rich man also died. However, he was buried. The intent is he did have his funeral service. He did have a place to be laid. So he was honored in life. He's also honored in death. But now the reversal is about to happen. It says the rich man died. And when you bury a rich man, when, when he dies, his eyes close. His eyes close. His arms are stiff. It's wrapped in burial cloths. And then watch what it says. In, in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus far off. So the implication is he closes his eyes, and the next thing he knows, he's burning. And then he opens his eyes, and he's someplace else. It says he lifted up his eyes, and he's transported in a completely different world. The rich man was not in Kansas anymore. The tables have turned and not in his favor. I think the shocker of the afterlife, the shocker of the afterlife, will be the sudden change. First Corinthians says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, everything changes. There's no time to prepare. There's no time to pack bags. There's no time to acclimate. You die. You close your eyes. Boom. You open them up on the other side. That fact. For some of you, it's going to be utterly different. It happened to two people in our community last week. They closed their eyes, and now they're somewhere else. People who are grieving here are still here. Where did they go? That's what we're going to talk about in a little bit. For me, I, it's weird lately how many funerals I've conducted. I still can't get over 
the suddenness of death. I really can't. Some people, there's some people, kind of reminds me of Isaiah Slater a little bit. They're just, you always think they're going to be there. You just always think they're going to be there. Then he skids off the road and he's gone. Closed his eyes. He opened them somewhere else. You just saw him. One of the most chilling passages, go to Luke chapter 12. It's only four chapters to your left. And look at verses 18 and 20. This is the story of the farmer. He's doing really well. He's doing so well, he wants to build bigger barns. Pastor Ken preached on this a couple months ago. But look, just watch the words in verses 18 through 20. Verse 18 of Luke 12. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. That's smart. And I will say to my soul, so he's going to talk to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, be merry. But sometimes that's one of the scariest words in the Bible. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Our minds, I think, are stuck on default mode, which is verse 19. Verse 19 has the idea that I have worked hard. I have invested my life. Now for the last 10, 15 years of my life, I should get to enjoy my hard work. Assuming it's mine. But then all of a sudden comes verse 20. In verse 20, in reality, comes at the strangest times and in the strangest ways. Verse 20 comes at the strangest times and in the strangest ways. That's why often I'll talk about my dad's death. I still don't believe it's true. So he closes his eyes and he opens them. And there's a new world. That's what we're going to talk about. The here is what you see right now. There is what's going to be called, what I'm going to call the hold. If you notice in verse, if we go back to Luke 16, if you notice in verse 22, Lazarus has taken Abraham's side. Old, like the old way to say this is Abraham's bosom. But some, but some Bible passages call it Hades. Some Bible passages call it Sheol. Some Bible passages call it Gehenna. Some Bible passages will say paradise. So we've got to understand this. What does he mean? And I'm just going to try to, I'm not going to try to describe it as much as explain what I think the Bible's saying. First of all, the hold is the holding tank of everybody that dies. Daniel 12, 2 says, Multitudes who sleep in dust of the ground of the earth will arise, meaning they will be fashioned with a brand new body and they will be transported to a different location. Some will go to everlasting life. Some will go to everlasting shame and contempt. Before Jesus came, those who died would go to either Everlasting life, that's called Abraham's side, a holding tank waiting for the consummation of all, all, 
all time, and some would go to Hades, Sheol. So you could say on the right, we will call Abraham's bosom. The idea is that he takes care of all the faithful. If you read the Old Testament, when somebody dies, it says they went to be with their own. Let's talk a little bit about this, because this is where Lazarus goes. Lazarus goes there, and three things it says very specifically. And before I go into it, some people say, well, this is parable, this is metaphor. But Jesus gets very specific. Not only does he get specific, but there's other passages in the Old Testament that corroborate what he's saying, and I'm going to talk about those. You'll understand what I mean. So when Lazarus dies... If you look at verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, your lifetime you received good things, Lazarus didn't. Now he's comforted. So the first thing we can say about Abraham's bosom is that it is a place of comfort. It is good. It is so good. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and the one thief believed in him? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what that is. Another word for that's paradise. So Abraham's side and bosom is paradise. Psalm 16, 10 to 11, David puts it like this. You will not abandon my soul in Sheol. There will be fullness of joy at your right hand. There will be pleasures forevermore. So in a way, Abraham's side is heaven. But it's an intermediate state. The fullness of heaven hasn't been realized. I was talking to somebody about it this way. Do you know earth is where heaven is ultimately going to be realized, but it's going to be refashioned? Okay, so first thing you can say about Abraham's side, it's comfort. Second thing, you maintain your personhood. Lazarus is still Lazarus. Abraham is still Abraham. One time Jesus was arguing with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. He said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in their personhood. Third thing is he has a body. He's knowable. When the rich man sits up, he knows by sight it's Abraham and Lazarus. So we are going to maintain some kind of bodily identifiable form. What's interesting, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the different types of elements. We right now are made out of flesh. Flesh is inferior to spirit. Spiritual man is superior to flesh. And then what's superior to spiritual man will be our refashioned bodies. That's the ultimate joy. I don't fully understand it, but I know it to be verified by Scripture. So on one side of the whole, and it's a holding tank, is it's good. It's interesting, when Jesus died, it says he went down to hell. The idea is he came down to the hold, and what he did is he preached to the people in Hades, but he took these people to be with him up in the immediate state, which is called the presence of Christ. Now let's talk about the other side. This is where it gets really bad. This is where the rich man goes. Number one, it is a place of punishment. He says, in verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Tip, tell, tell Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, like just take some water. 
just that much and just let it fall on my tongue. Man, I'm in anguish. First thing, it's a place of terrible punishment. Secondly, it is a reversal. It is a reversal of this life to the callous man. Look at Luke chapter 6. The rich man is experiencing Luke chapter 6, verse 24 to 26. Luke 24, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, meaning this place here is where you are receiving your reward. Woe to you who are full now, and the man ate sumptuously, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Luke 16 is the expression, or what I'd say the vivid testimony to what Jesus said earlier. So number one, it's punishment. Number two, it's a place that is a reversal. But number three, number three is you are identifiable. You still have your body. However, this time it's not fashioned to receive the joy of God. It is fashioned to basically maintain punishment without being annihilated. Some people believe in annihilation. When you go to hell, you're just going to be extinguished, kind of like a match, fall apart. But according to Isaiah, it says, uh, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. Question is, how are we supposed to understand this? We aren't. We are to be warned. But here's the worst part of all, is verse 26. Look at verse 26. And beside all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. What this means is what is done is done. There is no purgatory to pay off your debts. There is no second chance of meeting with Jesus. There is only a permanent placing. Hebrews 9.27 it is given once for man to die and face judgment. Daniel 12, 2. Let me say that again. Multitudes who sleep in the dust. Some will rise to everlasting life and others to shame and contempt. It doesn't say with the possibility of crossing over. There's a chasm fixed. So what we can say about the hold. If we are to compare the hold to here, where we are right now, everything will change. The reversal will be quick, the reversal will be harsh, and it will be devastating. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6 through 10 corroborates this. It says, uh, it's very direct. It says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and us as well. So that's a statement of reversal. God is just. If you are being troubled, don't worry. Those people who are troubling you, they will be troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished 
with everlasting destruction and shut out, shut out, that means there will be a chasm fixed, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. For many, this will be a true changing of the guard. This is not something for believers to gloat about. This is not something to rejoice in. The skies will be shaken. Fortunes will be lost. People believing they are living securely will have their lives utterly taken from them in a moment. And riches will be given to others who didn't earn them. It's going to be devastating. So that's the hold. But I just want to talk about one more thing. There is going to be one constant. Even though everything is going to change, one thing will remain. And this one thing determines what side of the chasm you're going to fall on. That's what this story is all about. I want you to notice really quickly something that the rich man has from the time he's in the here to the hole. The rich man's heart is still just as proud as it ever was. So you can say it like this. The disposition of the heart determines the destination of the man. The disposition of the heart determines the des destination of the man. The rich man's heart was proud, stubborn, callous, unwilling to repent. And he's just as haughty as he always has been. Look at verse 24. He sees himself, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. The commentator Green writes, this is amazing. The wealthy man has not been humbled by his new and undoubtedly startling uh, circumstances. Instead, he assumes that Abraham is still his father, meaning he thinks he's still on the inn with God, and that Lazarus is still there to carry out his orders. He still sees Lazarus as this little lackey underneath his feet. He is requesting mercy from Lazarus, though he never gave mercy to Lazarus while he's alive, and he doesn't even recognize his own callousness. Another commentator writes, this is a display of unconscious arrogance, assuming it is the poor man's duty to do his bidding. The rich man's heart hasn't changed. It's just as hard, crusty, judgmental as it's always been. If your heart is hard in the here, if your heart is hard and callous and judgmental, thinking you are owed, people need to do your bidding, they need to serve you, it won't change in the whole. You'll be just as hard as you always have been. That is why some of these statements like, uh, you know, I'm going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. That is such a false statement. You'll be just as angry as you've always been, just as bitter. What determines if you're actually a child of God or a doomed man? Your heart. Isaiah 26.10 says it like this. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. I was reading C.S. Lewis, and he quoted John Milton. He said, the choice of the lost soul can be best summed up in these words. It is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's the dark heart of an arrogant man. 
C.S. Lewis even says, it's sort of like the stubborn pride of a child. It's easy to spot when a child is spoiled. A spoiled child would sooner miss playtime in their supper than say sorry and be friends to their sisters. Sin and pride, sin and pride, make for a stubborn, unrepentant heart, unwilling to admit your wrong. The unwillingness to change is your death sentence. Not much is said about Lazarus' heart, to be honest with you. Some will argue that this story is about the difference. If you're rich, you're doomed. If you're poor, you're blessed, so let's help the poor. That's not the issue. It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to pointing a laser and a disgusting pride of the rich man. One thing we can say about Lazarus, however, and to hear is there seemed to be a brokenness, a sweet brokenness, and he was known by God. So scholars will say he probably was God's, he knew God by faith, but we don't know that. We don't know. Someone might read the rest of the story. Like if you keep reading in verse 27 and 28, it seems like uh, the rich man's having a change of heart again. Verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Is this a change of heart? First of all, he still doesn't see the poor. He still wants Lazarus to go to his brothers. Send that guy to my brothers. One commentator writes, his concern is characteristic of the rich, of the arrogant, whose circle of compassion only extends to their friends, brothers, relatives, and their rich neighbors who are able to repay concern with concern and hospitality with hospitality. Even his show of sensitivity only for his brothers is an indictment on his arrogance. So you could say his deep-seated sense of superiority remains. Still wanting Lazarus to do his bidding. Send him to my brother's house. But I want you to notice one more thing about the unrepentant heart. And this may be the most telling if your heart is hard. God's word has no effect on it. None. God's word has no effect on it. I, I once read, somebody said, the way you can tell that God's spirit is alive is when you read this book, it's kind of like an it's kind of like an ice hammer on your skull. It just like oh it just wakes you up. But for for the rich man, he's callous towards it. Look at verse 29. So he wants Abraham to send Lazarus, but Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them, meaning they have the scriptures. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that if someone should rise from the dead. Here's what he's saying. The rich man would rather to see a miracle than to have God's word. When people perform miracle, prefer miracles over God's holy scriptures, it's betraying a sense of entitlement. What I mean by that is the person who the word isn't enough for it, thinks they deserve more. I need a feeling. I need a personal word from God. I need something to wow me. If God, if you wow me, then I'll believe. Isn't this enough? 
Isn't the resurrection of his son enough to believe in him? Ah, oh, Moses, prophets, a man rising from the dead. Come on, God, give me more. I want more. If the word of God has no effect on you now, a miracle won't mean a thing to you later. You will still demand God to do your bidding. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to read it rather slowly. This is a this is a chilling passage. If you let this be like an ice pick to your skull, this is a chilling passage. Let the word speak to you, not me. Starting in verse 20 of Proverbs chapter 1, and I'll explain it. This was written by Solomon. Solomon gave wisdom to his sons. He's trying to teach his sons. And he says in verse 20, Wisdom, wisdom, he's going to personify wisdom. He says, Wisdom's like a woman who's at the end of a street where people are shopping and milling around, and she raises her voices voice in a public square at the end of the noisy street she cries out at the entrance of the city gate she speaks she's trying to get people's attention wisdom is and here's what she's saying how long oh simple ones will you love being simple how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Do you see what really he's saying is, is precious? His words. Because I've called, and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one's heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel, and have none of my reproof, this is where it gets scary, verse 26, I will laugh. At your calamity, I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It does remind me when Abraham looked up and he said, Father Abraham, help me in these flames. He said, well, child, remember? Remember? You could care less about Lazarus. And so now he's in comfort. And guess what? You're in flames. Where's, where's the compassion, Abraham? It's, a, it's confirming this statement. They will call upon me, but I will not answer. When distress and anguish comes, I will laugh. Wow. Keep reading. Look at 32 and 33 for the simple simple are killed by their turning away, and the condemnation, complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me dwells secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It's funny, I was talking to one of my sons, and he said, you know, Dad, I, if people would do what the Bible said, I think life would be a lot easier for them. I'm going to invite Jared up. Come on up, Jared. And as he comes up, I want to read a little section from this book, I've been reading it by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. It's an allegory of heaven. The idea basically is there's this bus that stops in hell and it takes people to heaven. It gives a glimpse of what heaven's like. And there's a lot of uh, conversations of the, what people are like that are bitter. 
and dwell in hell. But then, you know, and I wanted to get a good snippet of that. But then I read this. And this is what fascinated me. I read this last night. It's describing this guy is in heaven, and he's not fully acclimated to heaven yet. He doesn't understand it. He sees all kind of crazy things. And he said, I noticed a procession. It was kind of like a parade was coming towards me, full of bright spirits. So he, the way he describes people in heaven, they're solid, bright, like angelic, but they're bright like light. And they're strong and solid. But the people from earth and hell are kind of like ghost, gray, whispery, vaporish things. But these heavenly beings are solid. And he's saying this procession was coming, full of bright, solid spirits. And they were dancing, and they were scattering flowers. And they were drifting lightly onto the beautiful green grass. They were singing, and they were writing down songs about how the old will never grow sick, and they will get younger and younger. They were musicians, but there was a lady in the center. And he said it seemed like she was the one this parade was for. It describes her having a robe, possibly a crown. He says, I, I, don't, I kind of forgot my vision, but I do remember the unbearable beauty of her face, saying she was so stunning. And while he was looking, he was asking his guide, his, he had a heavenly guide, he said, is this, is this that famous person? And the person said, no, 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 not at all. It's someone you'll never have heard of on earth. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. She lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she is. She's one of the great ones. Now listen to this. He writes this. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are quite two different things. If you notice, all the young men and women on our side, they are her sons and daughters. Oh, she must have had a large family. No, no, no. Every young man and young, young girl that came across her in her life, she loved. She loved them so much that they went home to love their mothers and fathers even more. Wow, they, what, what's with all these animals? Cats, two cats, dozens of cats, dogs, birds, horses. Oh, they are her beasts. Did she keep a zoo? No, no, no. Every beast and, beast and bird that came near her on earth had its place in her love. In her they became themselves, and now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them into heaven. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it's like when you throw a stone into a pool and a concentric circle waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is like that in heaven. They become younger and younger, and their life extends farther and farther out. There is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as that lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe and the life. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, the people on earth we don't recognize, that are humble, that aren't known, they are the, they are, <laughs> they are the ones we celebrate. There is going to be a reversal like we have no idea about the proud, the haughty, those who think they're above everybody else, who don't need to think they need to repent because they have it figured out. They might be like the rich man where there is a chasm that's fixed and they can never get across it. This is terrifying. My question for you is this final question. Where is your heart? Is it hard? Is it unrepentant? Or are you humble? 
willing to wait, like Lazarus, for your glory to be revealed someday. Let's bow and pray, and Jared's going to lead us in a song. Father, we, we don't understand these things. We really don't. I, I know that your word says this, but there's only one person I know of that went to the other side of the grave and came back, and he said they're true. He said these things are true. So, Father, help us to embrace his word by faith. Help us to be willing to change who we are right now so that when we get to the hold, that different place, Father, we will be in comfort and not anguish. Help us to believe this. In Christ's name we pray.